listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Father, you are so good to us. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your obedient life. Thank you for the gift of your obedient death. Thank you for the gift of your resurrection, of of your promised return, of your indwelling Holy Spirit. God, thank you for the gift of this spiritual family, that we are not doing this thing alone, but that you have joined us together with brothers and sisters who, because of your work, have become actual family to us. Jesus, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for your church. You are so good to us. God, this morning as we continue on in worship, we ask Jesus that that the thoughts in our head, that the words of our mouth, that the study of your word, that all of these things would be pleasing to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I have a cool privilege for us this morning. You guys know... um, as, as a church, Red Tree, we have multiple missional partners, right? And so throughout the year, we'll have guys like Pastor Mike Bird or Pastor Rob Rash from some of these church plants that we support around the St. Louis area in the urban setting and the rural setting. They'll get to come hang out with us and talk about what God is doing in the church planting movement and drawing more to Christ and in expanding his kingdom. And it's really, really cool. But there are other ways that our church partners in the mission of the kingdom. You guys, this weekend, we got to hang out with David Paterka, one of our covenant members from Mid-Cities. They did a screening of the documentary, When the Saints, talking about uh, the work of When the Saints, of rescuing girls from sex trafficking in Malawi, and then, and then the work they do of rehabilitating and discipling the men and women who are involved in the actual trafficking. It's really cool, right? So, so as a church, we support the mission in more ways than just in church planning, although that's really, really important to us. We support works like When the Saints, but we also uh, support through, through some of our uh, connections with like Metro Baptist and things like that, we support uh, the seminary system. We are for raising up leaders and raising up new pastors and new church planners. A lot of you guys know this, but not all of you probably. So I'm currently at uh, a student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary out of Kansas City. They have an extension campus here in St. Louis. And so we have the privilege this morning of Dr. Brett Vaden, who is one of the professors at Midwestern, is going to be serving us today, preaching us through our passage. And I'm going to let him, uh, as he wants to, to share a little bit about uh, the work at Midwestern. But needless to say, it's, it's this, guys. One of one of the coolest things about uh, the way the SBC handles seminaries is that churches, through their generosity, through their missional partnerships, subsidize tuition so that people who are called to the ministry and who don't necessarily have the money to drop $800 a credit hour can go and get excellent theological education and training and preparation. And, and the seminary system that, that we're a part of, man, it's, it's just so good. It's a really beautiful balance of academics and also practical hands-on ministry to the church. And so uh, Dr. Vaden's going to come up here. I'm going to pray over him real quick. Dude, thank you so much for serving us today and and being with us. Um, It's it's just, it's a really cool privilege. So let me pray over you. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. We ask for your anointing on Brett. We ask that you would speak to us through your word and that we would all leave here this morning having spent the morning with you. Jesus, we trust you for these things. So we pray them boldly in your name. Amen. Thanks, man. Amen. Thanks, brother. So, uh, just wanted to 
tell you a little bit about myself first. Um, I really have uh, been missing my family this week. Uh, they are gone down to see Gigi and Papa down to Florida. So um, as I'm kind of spending, thank you, spending, uh, I'll just keep talking and you, I'll let you fix that. But um, as I have been uh, just alone this past week, I have been so thankful as I've looked, you know, you, when you're in a lonely house without three kids, I have three kids under the age of nine, and they're gone for a whole week, it's, it's really quiet in the house. And uh, there's lots of uh, time for me to just been med- meditating on uh, life a little bit. And one thing I came away with this week was just how, um, how much of a blessing it is to, to live a small, normal life. Um, and in, in that small life, just as a dad, uh, just as a husband, uh, just as a guy uh, in this world, like Jesus has something to say to me and to you. So I, I come this morning, hopefully just giving you um, a call, an invitation, uh, no matter what you're doing in life, no matter where you're at this morning, uh, Jesus's invitation is for you to experience uh, him and his rest. And so as uh, Sam said, uh, Sam and I know each other because I get to teach one of his classes that he's taking at Midwestern Seminary, and uh, so you'll you might feel like you're getting a teacher today a little bit instead of a preacher. And one of the ways I I'm actually going to invite you to receive that is that uh, every every once in a while I want to give you a moment just to think about what I've asked you. I'm going to ask you a few questions during this talk today, and I want you to answer it for yourself and to think about what I'm asking you. So if there's some pauses. Don't get weirded out uh, by that. Actually, take a moment in the silence uh, to consider what's being asked. So let me start off, uh, start off again by praying. Our Father, we do, as, as Sam asked God, that ask that you would come and you would speak and you would bless by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so recently... One of my pastors, I go to the Journey Church, a church here in town, and one of my pastors came and he said, you know, Brett, we're doing this class on suffering. And I thought of you, which that made me kind of question at first. But then he's like, but I'd love for you to come help me co-teach it. So if somebody ever asks you to go teach a class on suffering, be careful, okay? So I get up there, this is the first class just a couple weeks ago, and I'm just about to start, and the, the pastor comes over and he says, oh, by the way, Right in front of you at that table, um, there's a husband and wife, and, and the wife has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. She's about 35, same age as you. She has young boys, and she has weeks to live. Okay, <laughs> so, so, let me, so I, I, I start to talk, and I start to teach, and I look up for my notes, and of course, every time I look up, she's the first person I look at, and my eyes meet hers. And as I'm trying to talk about suffering, teach about it from the book of Job, I'm looking into suffering. There's a difference, right? And I don't, I don't, I don't claim to like be able to feel that her pain, right, or her husband's pain, but I could see in her eyes something that was deeper. You know, something that just can't be thought about and talked about, but really more has to be seen and listened to. So there's a difference between just looking at something and actually being in it. Um, in C.S. Lewis's uh, little meditation called um, Meditation in a Tool Shed, he talks about this and how he was, 
one day in his backyard going to his tool shed, and as he was rummaging around for some tools, uh, stirring up the dust, he turned around and noticed this beam of light coming in through the crack in the shed from the, from the sun. And he saw this beam, you know, in the, in the dust, and, uh, and he looked at the beam, and then he went over and he, he kind of followed along the beam and, and stepped into it, and about 90 million-odd miles away, looked in the sun. He talks about how looking at the beam and looking along the beam are two different things, right? Uh, yeah, the, the, it's a nice pretty beam, but then you see this full blazing star in the sky. And he goes on and he says, you know, he gives another example. He talks about um, being in love as an example. So let me just read this little passage here. It's quite, quite good. He says, a young man meets a girl. The whole world looks different when he sees her. Her voice reminds him of something he has been trying to remember all his life. And 10 minutes casual chat with her is more precious than all the favors that all other women in the world could grant. He is, as they say, in love. Now comes a scientist and describes this young man's experience from the outside. For him, it is all an affair of the young man's genes, his biological makeup, and recognized biological stimulus. So Lewis says that's the difference between looking along, like letting the... Uh, the sexual impulse, he says, the, the, that to lead to love and looking at something, just describing it scientifically from the outside. You know, you know what Lewis means because you've all experienced this in yourselves, right? You have uh, looked from the outside. So just the, a couple nights ago, there's a thunderstorm, right? If you're sitting there in your living room, you're watching the thunderstorm outside, it's beautiful, right? Like lightning comes crashing down all over the sky. You can hear the boom of the thunder. But it's quite a different thing to be in the thunderstorm, right? The rain pelts you, and in seconds you're drenched. The lightning's all around you, booming, freaking you out. Reading um, a story, an adventure story, I love to read uh, fiction. Reading a story is different than being in an adventure, right? Um, dating is, that, is different than being married, right? Because in marriage, there's, there's an extra requirement that you really have to love this person no matter how you feel. Looking at God, Looking at God isn't the same as knowing God, right? So don't be fooled. Just because you hear uh, God's word, just because you're here in this place, just because you've sung the songs, and even because you're trying to maybe live a good life, that doesn't mean you know God. So you guys have been in Mark, the book of Mark. So if you remember in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Mark uh, tells us about a story where Jesus is at church. He's at the synagogue. And he's there, and there is a man with a withered hand. Can't use the hand. And Jesus um, goes over, and he, he, he does this miracle in the sight of all these people. And they're watching him. They're watching him do this to this man and heal him and bring him life. And the Pharisees, some of the churchy people, were there, and they saw this. And what did they do? They, they didn't see Jesus, really. They didn't see him as who he was. They saw him as a rival who was getting on their turf. And so they hardened their hearts to him. And immediately after this, after a miracle, they go out and they plan how they can get rid of him. So do you see Jesus? Here's my question. First question. Do you see Jesus 
as he really is. Do you really get him when you look at him? How many people do you think in the world or in St. Louis or in your neighborhood hear about Jesus, look at Jesus, but don't really see him? Do you see him? You know, it's strange. It's strange that when in the Gospel of Mark uh, we see these stories of Jesus casting out demons, what happens when the demons see Jesus? They immediately recognize him. Right? If you read the stories, the, the demons don't have any trouble seeing who he is. And they'll say things like, the Holy One of God! Right? Or they'll fall down at Jesus' feet and say, you are the Son of God! It's, it's curious when you compare that with how people react to Jesus. Right? People see Jesus, and it's different. The Pharisees, they miss who he is. Right? They just see another guy, not God. People see Jesus and they think, uh, well, he's interesting. He's talking these about the, he's giving us these stories, parables. Um, he's even performing these miracles. Some people saw Jesus like a magician. I'll go see what this is about. Some people hoped that he might be uh, a new revolutionary who would lead Israel out of Roman oppression and, and lead them to, uh, to be their own nation again. And of course, like the Pharisees, others just thought he was a rival, a rival teacher to be overcome. What about today? Well, today people, it's the same thing. You know, how many people do you know who just think of Jesus as a historical figure, right? somebody who lived a long time ago, a famous person? Maybe a little better, they think, well, he had something to say. He was a, he was a good teacher. Um, or he was a, kind of an end times prophet sort of guy, and it ended up he failed at the end. Some people even question that he existed and think that maybe he's just something to believe in, right? Something for churchy folk to put their faith in. So, you know, Here's the thing, though, if you think about that. Christians often want to stand up for Jesus and like, correct any misconceptions about Jesus. So we, we, we think we've got to do this big and loud. So you know, some of us might, might put it on a big billboard on the interstate. You know, Jesus is real. Or we might put a sign in our yard about Jesus. And when we go to the store at Christmas time, we, we don't say Happy Holidays. We say Merry Christmas you know, to people. And I don't, I don't think... You know, in my, in my heart, I often feel like guilty that, uh, man, I want to proclaim Jesus more. When I give five bucks to a guy on the street, I want to always say, in Jesus' name. And there's something really right about that. But here's what I want us to see. When Jesus went out, he wasn't desperate or needy to be big and loud about who he was and to always be crystal clear with people. He, he didn't feel the need to do that. Um, so, in fact, what we see him doing is quite the opposite. Right? In Mark, when demons recognize Jesus, he tells them, be quiet. Don't say anything. It, when he heals a leper, uh, he tells the leper, go immediately to the priest um, and don't tell anyone what's happened, you know, that I did this. So why? Why would Jesus hide himself? Look at the text. We're in Mark chapter 4, and we're looking at uh, verse 21 to start with. 
Here's, here's Jesus in Mark 4, 21, and he's speaking to the crowd, the crowd of curiosity seekers, the crowd of people who've come to see something. And he's, uh, you've got to remember that when he talks to the crowd, he, he always teaches in parables. That's the main way he speaks to them, these stories. And he's telling these parables, and we've got to remember that because um, parables are funny. They force people to either choose to go deeper with Jesus or to just walk away. That's how parables work. And in chapter 4, uh, the first part of that chapter, which you, you heard in a previous sermon, uh, that, was, that was showing this fact, that the parables are, are really, they're kind of testing the soils, right, of people. Are you good soil? Are you going to receive it or not? Well, so in other words, when we read uh, chapter 4, verse 21 and follow, and we should expect that these parables are going to require us to ponder them and to apply them in our life for us to really get them, to really see what's going on. So look at the first one in verse 21. So he said to them, is a lamp brought out to be put under a basket or under a bed? Right? And not on a stand. And then Jesus says this, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. This is curious because it's not clear why Jesus would say that last part, where he says, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. You know, in, in, our, in our world, when we hide something, we do it in order to hide it, right? We, we hide something to hide it. Uh, but we, we think about politicians, right? They hide their past. Militaries, militaries hide their secrets. Um, children hide their stash of candy. Uh, and teenagers hide your pimples. So we hide things to hide them. We hide them so they will not be seen. But obviously then something is different here about what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is talking about. The kind of hiding he's talking about is one in which what's hidden is meant to be found. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, he says. Nor Nothing is secret except to come to light. Well, if you think about it, actually you do know what kind of hiding this is. You've, done it, you've all done it before. You're probably going to do it here in a couple of weeks. If you've ever participated in an Easter egg hunt, you know that the, the Easter eggs and the candy inside the eggs, right? well, you've got those plastic ones, they're hidden so that they will be found. Imagine an Easter egg hunt where that wasn't the case, right? And they, the, the adults hid the eggs to hide them, not to be found. There would be very sad children and very mean and cruel adults in that Easter egg hunt. So, no, the purpose of hiding the yummy candy in the eggs is so that they will be searched for, so that they will be discovered. There's a particular kind of delight, right, in discovering something you've searched really hard to find. And parents know this. That's why they don't just buy candy at Walmart and dump it on the floor and say, there's your candy, happy Easter. <laughs> I mean, I guess some parents maybe do that. But it kind of cheapens it, doesn't it? It takes away from the joy and delight of discovery. So back to the question, why does Jesus hide himself? Why doesn't he just come out? and say who he is. When Jesus, the light and hope of the world, comes to us, 
His intent, he's saying in this parable, is to hide something, to hide himself, that it would be made known. Interesting. That Jesus would keep something secret so that it might be seriously sought after and looked into. You might wonder why you know, he does this. Why hide the, the light? Right? He's come to the world to, to show people about him. Why not put it on the stand? Why hide it under a basket? Why hide it under a bed? Well, why do you think that? The parable is calling you to ask yourself that question. Why hide the brightness of his light? think that the answer is that there's two sides to this. There's two sides. One side is Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light. He is that lamp. And he wants to be known, but there's another side, and that's people. And although Jesus is willing to reveal himself, people are not willing to to know and see him for who he is. None of us, none of us really are willing for the light to be made manifest. Because why? Because the light exposes us. It exposes who we are. For the light to come in full force in our dark world, it would just send us scurrying. We don't want to be known for our selfishness, our addiction, our, our, our our dependency on things like food or lust and comfort or porn or whatever it is. We don't want to let that be known. But even deeper than that, we don't want to be exposed as the weak and dependent creatures that we are. Right? That's really at the heart of all of our false selves and ways of living is that we try to make ourselves strong, make ourselves able, make ourselves beautiful, make ourselves worthy apart from God who gives all those things to us freely. We want to, we want to be our own Savior, our own God. So to, for the light of the world to come and expose that, no, 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 no. No, we don't want that. Um, and so instead of entering our world with full brightness and luminosity, Jesus doesn't do that. He actually comes and humbles himself and takes the form of a man, of a servant, and dims his light. Right? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus has dimmed his light. Why? So that we might be able to see just enough that it would draw us closer to him and discover what's really there. This is the meaning of the second parable in verses 24 and 25. Look there. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What's what's Jesus' parable getting at there? Well, that part about the measure, think about going to the market in Jesus' day, right? You go to the market, you're going to buy some flour, the grocer's there with a flour. The, normally, the grocer would say, okay, look, you get a pound of flour, and this is how much it costs. You know, five shekels, I don't know. And 
That's what, that's, what, that's what it is, you know, this much for this much money. But Jesus' parable is different. Jesus' parable is saying, no, imagine you go and <clears throat> the grocer says, everything is five shekels. You can just take as much as you can carry, as you know, much as you have room in your bag for. Imagine that. Imagine if you could go uh, to a store and the only thing limiting you was not the price of the thing, but the size of your bag. Right? You'd be bringing huge bags with you to the mall in West County. You'd be, uh, you'd be bringing uh, as much as you could, you know, all of the Trader Joe's bags you could into Trader Joe's to get as much food as you can because it's all one flat fee. They do this at McDonald's, right? If you ever go to McDonald's and you buy yourself a, a drink, it doesn't matter what size, it's all the same price. It's all $1. Small, medium, large, it's all $1. So, uh, but McDonald's doesn't do that with everything. It's only the drinks. Imagine if Amazon did that, right? Yeah. The size of your, your bag is the size of your, your, your shopping cart, <laughs> which is, you know, Amazon would quickly go out of business. So Jesus is saying, you know, what, what is limiting us? It says, well, the measure you use, it will measure to you. That's what's blocking you. What, what is blocking you? Is it, is it really the price of admission to God? No. There's nothing you've done there's nothing you have become that you need to pay for. No penalty, no punishment you need to bear on yourself. That has been done. So there's this truth in Scripture that it says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Christ paid the penalty. Christ took on the price for himself so that the only thing limiting you is the size of your bag the measure that you use. Are you going to come to Jesus ready to receive or not? So, but, you know, there is the sort of cost. Really, rather, there's a sort of risk when we come to Jesus, and that is the risk of dropping what's already in our hands. Right? Augustine says this, God wants to give us something, but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. What's in your hands? What's in your hands? It's keeping you from receiving. You know, Jesus is still here. Did you know that? And Jesus is here right now. Jesus is in your life all the time. And he's always giving you opportunities to see him, to take what he has to give you all the time, every day, by his Spirit. He's in many of you, and he's in the people around you, especially the smallest and weakest around you in your life, right? Jesus says, in the least of these, that's where you'll find me, in the, in the child, in the widow, the widow who is overlooked, who is marginalized, who's not seen, that's where you'll find Jesus. In the orphan, I just read there are 400,000 orphans in foster care in the United States alone, and 100,000 of them are waiting to be adopted. The orphan is where Jesus is. Jesus is giving us opportunities all over the place. Remember the man with the withered hand I mentioned earlier in, in Mark 3. Jesus is there with that man who has been kept from work, who's been kept from fullness of life, and Jesus wants to heal him. But more than that, Jesus also wants the people there to see him working. He wants to, them to see the kingdom and to become part of that work. He's inviting them into that. He was there to let the people watch him 
do good and save life. But when the churchy people, right, who, that's, that's us, some of us, that's us, when they saw Jesus, what did they do? They, they, were, they were judging him in their hearts. And Jesus saw them and it says he was angry with them. And he was grieved in his heart. He was grieved that the opportunity he gave was thrown away because the Pharisees' hands were already too full. Full of what? Power. Control. Right? The, the comfort of their own little kingdom that they, they had established. What they were not able to do was let go of those things and really receive what Jesus was inviting them into. And you know, we all have our own little kingdoms that God has allowed us to have at work, at home, with, the, with our people, our families. Some of you need to take a look at your own little kingdom. And you need to ask yourself, are you honoring your kingdom that he's given you? Are you actually letting Jesus' kingdom come into that or are you not? Take your body, for example. Are you honoring your body as the place of God's dwelling? Or are you just appeasing your body with whatever feels nice in the moment? Uh, are you teenagers out there? Maybe some of you need to hear that. That's, you know, are you honoring your kingdom, that what God has given you? You know, God has given you teenagers something to rule over, and that's yourself. Are you Letting your emotions rule you? Are you letting foolishness, rebelliousness rule you? Or are you ruling over it? Are you letting Jesus control you and move in you? Men and women, are you engaging your work and your home from a place of enthusiasm and love or from apathy and passivity? So... Gosh, let me confess, what's often in my hands is a smartphone. <laughs> and when I come home from work, I am so tempted uh, not to receive Jesus' kingdom, right? But to look back at the phone and say, has someone replied to my message? Because I, I need to perform, right? And out of that performance anxiety, I'm looking for somebody to say, yeah, you're doing a good job, right? Yeah, here's more work for you. Here you go. Or, I'm going and I, I want to be liked. I want people to like me. So I'll see, well, did so-and-so reply to my message yet? Hmm, got to go check. Instead of being present to the kingdom God's given me, the little kingdom of my family, that's where he's doing work, right? And my wife, who after all day is just thankful to have an adult to talk to for a few minutes, right? That is precious. And that's where I can see Jesus in that conversation with her as I celebrate with her the little joys of the day, the moments with the kids, the moments of, of grief in her life, the moments of anxiety in her life. If I, as I enter into that with her, that's where Jesus is, right? Not, in what's, not, not here with what's in my hands. My kids, my kids are where Jesus is, right? And to experience Jesus with them might look like romping on the floor and wrestling or might look like reading Harry Potter with my nine-year-old who can't stop reading right now. It's awesome. But... Uh, it might just look like taking my kid to McDonald's to get one of those drinks. You know, he gets the small because he's crazy and wired up anyway, so I can't give him the large. But it's just asking myself this question, am I willing to let go of being the performer at work and receive just being 
husband, just being a dad, just being a man who doesn't need just to be liked, but to be loved, doesn't just need to work all the time and put effort out there, but rest and be grateful for what has happened in that day. Do you, are you like me and you, you find it hard to go to sleep at night? How many of you, you, know, you lie in the bed and you, you can't go to sleep? What's happening there for you? I don't know, maybe many things, but for me sometimes it's just the thoughts of the day running through my mind or the thoughts of the next day running through my mind. And I can't let them go. I can't just open up my hands a little bit. They're just so clenched. This, this week, being at home alone without the family, that's often I felt this in, in, in bed as I'm going to sleep. Like, I don't have the comfort of my wife who loves to snuggle, you know, being right there. You know, it's like, it's like, no, all the thoughts in my head, they're right there present to me. There's nothing to pacify them. Just let a little bit of that go. That's what Jesus is inviting us into, me into. You know, in the next two parables, uh, Jesus kind of gives us a picture into the rest that comes when we let everything else drop. And he says in, in, chapter, in uh, verse 26, the kingdom of God is, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and he sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Right? His effort, the little effort of dropping the seed in, well, something happens. He doesn't know how it works, but it's happening. Day after day, the kingdom is working. The kingdom is moving. The earth, it says in verse 28, produces by his wisdom, by her ingenuity, by her anxiety, wrestling through the night, thinking thoughts about the morning? No. It produces by itself. By itself. There's a mystery to the kingdom. God's kingdom, it grows, it moves, it works, quite apart from our anxious efforts to make it so. And there's, there's real joy in life in that, brothers and sisters. There's some peace in that. Some of you need to hear that this morning, that man... You are feeling the weight of your anxieties and the world on your shoulders. And you just, you know, what would it look like? Let that go for a little bit. Ah, man, the tension in your shoulders might even like start to go away if you did that. If we have a place in God's kingdom, we don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to move it along. It'll move along quite on its own. Thank you. You know, so again, for you who feel that weight, take comfort. In, uh, in the last parable he gives in, in uh, verse 30, he says, With what can I compare the kingdom of God? What parable should we use? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. A little bitty, tiny seed, right? Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Your day, brother and sister, is coming. And as tiny as life feels right now sometimes for you, as insignificant as you feel right now, if you're in his kingdom, 
one day you're going to see the greatness of that kingdom. And one day when the fruit of your life is ripe, there's going to be a harvest. Right now, you know, as exciting as our lives are, you know, on Facebook and Twitter and, and, and Netflix, um, we'll, we'll look back and we'll just see that this was just a, the blank, dull page of the beginning of the book. And there's so much more. There's so much more. The life of this kingdom is a great tree that houses many in its shade. But the lie of the world is that you'll be happier the more effort you put into life, the more thinking you put into things, um, the more of you. One of the lies, uh, one form of the lie says this, when you know more and are smarter than others, uh, then you'll have made yourself into something. But here's the, here's the truth. The greatest thinkers in the world um, can have some of the most foolish thoughts. As much time as they put into it, uh, what they, the picture of their world can be very small. I'm going to give you one example. So there was a, uh, there's a Cambridge philosopher, professor, and atheist named Simon Blackburn. He's thought a lot about the universe. Okay? He's thought a lot about it. But I want to read for you a quote from uh, Simon. This is, his, this is his picture of the universe that he's thought a lot about. He says this, The cosmos is some 15 billion years old almost unimaginably huge and governed by natural laws that will compel its extinction in some billion years or more. Although long before that, the earth and the solar system will have been destroyed by the heat death of the sun. Human beings occupy an infinitesimally small fraction of space and time on the edge of one galaxy among 100,000 million or so galaxies. We evolved only because of a number of cosmic accidents. Nature shows us no particular favors, we get parasites, diseases, and we die. And we are not all that nice to each other. True, we are moderately clever, but our efforts to use our intelligence quite often backfire. That, more or less, is the scientific picture of the world. What a very small universe that is. Right? Think about what would your goal in life be if that's your picture of life? Maybe just to get along with people and get as much pleasure as you can before you die. That's about all you have. So compare that with uh, the words of a Christian woman named Julian, Julian of Norwich, who lived a few hundred years ago. She asked God, God, I really want to let go of what's in my hands and receive all of you. So even if you have to make me sick to the point of death, will you do that so I can let go? She writes that, she received a vision from the Lord where he spoke to her. And she writes this, that um, in her folly, in my folly before this time, I often wondered why, by the great wisdom of God, that the coming of sin in the world wasn't prevented. For then I thought all should have been well. She, she, she had this anxiety. Why, why do you let sin and suffering in the world, God? That was weighing on her. This question and doubt led her to a lot of sadness and anxiety. But then she says this, but Jesus, who in this vision informed me of all that is needed by me, ensured that, uh, that I would have hope with these words. And he said, it was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well. And all shall be well. 
and all manner of things shall be well. She goes on and she says that these words were said most tenderly, showing no manner of blame to me, nor to any who shall be saved. The words that Jesus gives to you is not, it's all going to turn out to be a big, vast space and you die off, right? The words he gives to you are, it is a mystery. Life is a mystery. It's a tiny mustard seed right now. But it's all going to be well. It's all going to be well. Our lives are a mystery. And one reason they are a mystery is that so we wouldn't just look at Jesus, but we'd look along Jesus and follow and see who he really is. That we would actually search for him. And in searching for him with all our heart, we would find him. One of my uh, favorite stories is the Lord of the Rings. And in one of the chapters of Lord of the Rings, you've seen, how many of you have seen the movie? You've seen the movie? So some of you can get, okay. So in the story, uh, there is a, there's a, a, a ranger. He's a, he's a gruff, grim guy who goes out and fights bad guys and orcs. His name is Strider. And uh, there's a, a hobbit named Pippin who knows Strider, has got to know him well. And as he's talking with the wizard Gandalf at one point, Gandalf is explaining that the Strider is actually the coming king, the king they've all been waiting for. Pippin's astonished. He's like, what? Wait, wait, did I, did I hear you right, Gandalf? And Gandalf says, yes, if you have walked all these days with closed ears and mind asleep, wake up now. So for all of us who feel... Um, that that's, that's us, that we're asleep a lot, that our ears are closed. Jesus says this, he who has ears, let him hear. Right? Listen. If you're reading the Bible or in following Jesus, listening to people like me, Sam, and others, you just feel like sometimes it's too hard to figure out. It's too much. I, it's just easier to, to glance at it every once in a while and then walk away. Let me... Let me encourage you, let it trouble you. Let, let Jesus weigh on you a little bit. Let that little sliver of light that you get from him just draw you a little deeper in. By doing so, we really are disciples. Notice that in the last part of the, the chapter there, verse 33, it just closes off with this. It says, with many such parables, he spoke to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them, the crowd, the once in a while glancers at Jesus, without a parable. But look at this. But privately, to his own disciples, he explained everything. What does it mean to be a disciple? To be one of those who goes to Jesus and says, I, I don't know what you were just saying there. Will you, will you explain that further to me? Will you take me further in? And Jesus says, yeah, I will. Jesus doesn't need to. He's not desperate to, but he wants to, and he will. The greatest mystery of all is the crucifixion of God on the cross. And it'll take all of life for us to go further in into that, higher up into the cross, that it's okay. It's a gradual process. Being a disciple isn't a one-and-done thing. It's an all-of-life thing. Some of you, you know, some person might object Brett, are you just saying, like, I just needed to just buy into it, hook, line, and sinker, without ever thinking? No. 
That's not what a disciple is. A disciple has questions. A disciple has doubts. But he or she doesn't leave them and go off somewhere else. No. He or she pursues. Goes deeper. So, back to the question. I'm going to leave you with this. You can't do that if you've got something in your hands. Right? Hands are full. You're not going to be able to receive. So what's in your hands? I'm going to give you a moment. Just to answer that question for yourself. What's in your hands that you need to be able to drop? Jesus, take the seed of your word, plant it deep in our hearts, that a tree of life would grow. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.